Hey, Jonathan. How's it going? Partying over here, Seth. What are you up to? Well, I'm doing a podcast. Oh. I mean, me too. Okay. Isn't this I mean, a podcast I... party? Yeah, I mean, you can party. Just I just... We just got to be careful about the music in the background, like if it's pumping. Fair. Did you bring me any presents? I didn't know it was that kind of party. Dang it, Seth. <laughs> okay, let's try and get this back on track with a very important question. What would you do in this particular situation? Would you want to have one child or 12 children? Assuming you have to have a child. Or 12. (laughs) Jonathan, what is one? That's correct. (laughs) Sorry, I just jeopardied my own answer. Yeah, I'd pick one. I respect that. I think that. Wait, tell, tell us why. Two experiences recently. My sister has four children... Who are all under the age of six. Including two twins. Who were born last July. So I was with them around Christmas. And it was a lot. And then I think to myself. Triple the number of children. And I poop my pants a little bit. (laughs) Also I was just with another nibbling. My newest nibbling. M. Wolongaton. Who's born to Sarah and Larry. My sister-in-law and brother-in-law the beginning of January. Uh, We just got to meet her recently. And she's a little tiny human. And she's enough. You know, like, she required enough attention. One is enough, (laughs) Seth. Yeah, I think I'm with you. My only thought otherwise is that sometimes, like, when you see one, a parent with one child, they look stressed out. But like, and I'm not sure where the level is. I think it's different for every person. But like, at some point, like when you have a, so many children, you've just given up, and you just like don't. Nothing phases you anymore. You're just like, as long as everybody's alive, you know, it's fine. And you see them like they get out of the van, and like everybody's going crazy, and they just like they have like a supernatural calm about them. That's like the one thing. I'm like, well, maybe you've, like if you get to 12, you've, you're well past that point. But I think I'm going to go with one. That is very true. To be clear, I love all of my nibblings. Which, if you didn't know, is the gender-inclusive term for nieces and nephews. Nephew. Yeah. I did know that. And what you're saying is very true. My sister and brother-in-law, with their four very young children, are also now like the chillest parents <laughs> ever. <laughs> And it's, it's great. It's, it's very, I mean, it's, it's a lot of energy and a lot going on, but it's not like as stressful as it could be because of that. (laughs) Yeah. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Like, it's still a lot, but like somehow they're just either just so used to it or so worn down from never sleeping that just doesn't phase them anymore. And I I feel like that. I feel like I benefited from being the youngest of three children, even. I was I was born a lot later than my brother and sister, too. But, like, I got to grow up watching The Simpsons. I got to stay up later. I got a cell phone a lot younger. I think my parents, by that point, were just like, eh. The others turned out fine. Yeah. And it was, 
and it was harder. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, your parents usually listen to our podcast. I know. So, so hopefully I'm, inter- I don't... I'm interested for them to text you about. Yeah, I hope I don't get too much grief. <laughs> what you just? Yeah, what you just said. Maybe I could. Maybe I could redeem it by uh, reading our scripture. So why don't I do that for us? That'd be great. This is Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, from the New Revised Standard Version. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and count the stars, if you are able to count them. Then God said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought him all these and cut them in two, laying each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day... The Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Thanks for reading that for us. It's a longer, longish passage, but is there like something that jumped out at you or a couple things? I love this passage for one reason. And it's the image in verse 11 when Abram has to chase away the birds that are coming down to eat his sacrifice. (laughs) Because, I mean, at this point, part of the the whole story is how Abram's old. So this has very strong get-off-my-lawn energy. (laughs) Where Abram's coming out and, like, waving his cane in the air and, like, Mr. Fredrickson from Up throwing his tennis balls at these birds and it's like amplified to the effect that the sacrifices are for this incredible promise too right like it's not just that he's crotchety it's he's crotchety and he needs to be crotchety to get something that he really really wants (laughs) so admittedly i read a lot into those few words about abram driving the birds away but i think that's the gift of scripture is that it invites us to think and imagine and be creative. And I choose to make Abram Mr. Fredrickson from up in this situation. 
I appreciate that because I I liked that line too. It's like a very human line. Right. You can totally see him doing that. And I'm just but, also like, why is it important enough to include in this story? <laughs> <laughs> it's like this very high level dialogue between Abram and God. And all of a sudden, Abram's just standing back, tired after killing so many animals. He's like, no, birds, no! And just, like, runs after them. That's that's just, just why? Why is it necessary? That's my main question, Seth. That's what I want us to talk about. <laughs> just kidding. Well, then, do you, have a, do you have a working theory? A working theory? Yeah. I think it actually does demonstrate how important this was to Abram. When certain things come in your yard, like if, you know, a stray dog comes into your yard, most of the time it's not going to be that creepy. But have you ever been near a bird of prey? <laughs> like, they're huge. They're scary. Their whole MO is eating dead things. Like, actively yeah. killing and eating dead things. And Abram just goes in and gets them away from a pile of dead things. I mean, okay, now I'm actually convinced that it's a very important detail, too. Because it just shows it shows you how much this meant to him. I like that theory. I was thinking it, like I guess I alluded to earlier, that like it humanizes him. Even this miraculous interaction with God, in which he talks to God back and forth, has this dialogue, in which he makes a covenant, like with with the ruler of the universe. Then he's still shooing birds away. Later, he's a down to earth guy. Well, besides the birds, besides Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, <laughs> is there anything else that jumped at you? I mean, I think it kind of gets back to what we were just talking about, about how significant this moment is. And how much Abram wanted what God was offering. And I know it, you know, means something different, meant something different to Abram to have kids than it might mean to you or to me. But there's clearly a deep, deep value there. That he's willing to do just about anything for. Yeah, isn't that amazing? What he seems to want is kids. But he has Eliezer of Damascus. But that's not good enough. Like, that's what I think is so interesting in this passage. Is he has a slave who's born in his house. But that somehow... Like, he wants his own offspring. Every translation that I read has verse 4 reading, This man or this one shall not be your heir. But the commentary that I read says that man is not there in Hebrew. It just says, This shall not be your heir. That even... Even the text is like, yeah, Eliezer's not even a person. He's just like he's just like an object as a, as a slave, which I think just hits me hard. 
Well, here's, here's how I've been thinking about this passage that I think will move us toward what's, what's the point. Abram doesn't even want to think about Eliezer of Damascus, the slave born in his house, as one of his children. But later in Israel's history, his own offspring will be oppressed and be slaves in Egypt. And that becomes so crucial to their identity. So I've just been thinking about the ways that kind of what we want to avoid, like what we find almost repulsive, like still can still wind up as being part of our story. Like even if it's our own doing, even if we did something, we're like, oh, I wish I could forget about that. But like it's with us. And that that shapes us too. In the same way that being slaves in Egypt shapes Israel's entire narrative. Yeah, I, I, that's an interesting point. Because I actually think sometimes we are annoyed or repulsed, to use the word you used, uh, by things in others that we really don't like about ourselves, too. Hmm. Hmm. You don't for have me, to give an example. I was going to, well, I was going to say. You can. For me. I don't want to be like, tell us what you don't like about yourself and then also what you see in me that you don't like. <laughs> no, I, I was going to say something along the lines of like, I don't like when people like to hear themselves talk for a long period of time. And yet that is, yeah, I know why you're laughing. Because it's very true of myself, and it's something I'm very like mindful of, and you know, at my worst, insecure about. Because I give very long answers to questions, and I don't know. And there are other things like that too that are like I find when I'm digging into th- you know things that are really bothering me or people who are just really annoying me for some reason. It's like, oh, they're doing that thing that I do that I don't like. <laughs> hmm. And it either helps me develop a little more patience and self-awareness, or it helps me develop empathy for other people who spend more time around me. (laughs) Okay, this is just a working theory. This is, I'm coming up with this right now on the spot. Okay. But sometimes I think that what we don't like about ourselves, in the same way that you talk about not liking that in other people, that sometimes we also apply that to God. Like if we don't like something in ourselves, we see the same thing in God. We're like, I don't like that part of God. Say more about that. Okay. We'll see if oh. this theory holds any water. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we will. Like I said, I'm just this is off the top of my head. But I think like if if it annoys us that Sometimes, like, we can be a know-it-all, where other people can be know-it-alls. Sometimes it also bothers me that God is a know-it-all. I'm like, I don't want that to be true. Like, I wish I could 
I could dole out some information to God. I could kind of control what God sees in me or about me. But that's not how that's not how it works with God. Like I recognize that that's not how it works. And I'm like, oh. I wish it I wish and it didn't work that way. Our listeners can't see this, but you're very deep in thought. Yeah, I I think you're you're just prompting. I mean, it's just a, a it feels like a broader connection of what we've already been talking about, right? It's like the things we are prone to notice and gripe about in, that we see in others usually have something to do with ourselves. Not always. I agree but, with that. Yeah. yeah, it's like whenever we are looking to cast aside someone deny them something due to them as abram's <laughs> doing it's like and it's interesting too because it's like at least in my understanding of how the book of genesis came to be this is israel looking back on their own story and documenting these narratives of how they came to be <laughs> and so they knowing their history and knowing the stories that they tell themselves about who they are still looked back and said oh no like the enslaved person can't be the heir (laughs) even though that's exactly what ended up happening too i think that just makes it so interesting how that how i wonder they were wrestling with their own identity in Mm. that situation yeah i think that's a great point israel knows their own history of being enslaved when they write this it doesn't go in canonical order. It's not written in canonical order, right? Where they write Genesis, not knowing that the Exodus narrative is, is going to happen. Right. There wasn't someone writing it down as it was happening, documenting it live. <laughs> yeah, you exactly. expect a journalist to do or a historian to do or something like that. Like, it is written in retrospect. And it's likely written about stories that are important to their culture. Yeah, exactly. And even with all the admonitions about how to treat slaves with the, with the refrain for you were once slaves in Egypt, when they write this story, you can still, you can still see some of it come through like, Oh, that, the slave Eliezer of Damascus is still inferior somehow. These old habits, they just, they just die so hard. So hard to, to stamp them out. Yes, I guess Seth, looping it back to us, or I guess specifically to me. There are other times too where you know, I recognize patterns of behavior in myself that are hard to deal with. Or patterns where I've caused other people harm. And while I've like tried to work through those things and you know limit those patterns in my life, when I see them cropping up in others, I'm like, oh, uh uh-uh. uh. <laughs> it's almost like I can only bear so much of myself <laughs> that I'm not willing to bear the parts of myself I see in others. At least the parts I don't Mm. like as much. And that's definitely a very human thing. 
Yeah. But I wonder what that perspective becomes when we shine some grace in it or on it Mm -hmm. to say Mm -hmm. these things are problematic or these things are hard or these things we find annoying, but they're still who we are. They're still who this other person is. I don't know. I don't think grace says you can't find things annoying, (laughs) but I do think that grace says that the annoying things don't make a person including you, unworthy of love. One time when I lived at the seminary, uh, one of my really good friends was having a bad day. Just like nothing was going his way that day. And we sat down at lunch. He looks at me. He goes, I hate people. And I was like, well, you know, maybe being a pastor isn't the job for you. And he looks at me. He goes, well, you don't have to like everyone. You just have to love them. I think of that a lot, actually. That even sometimes, both both as a pastor, but of course as not, like people will get on your nerves. You won't want to spend any more time with them, but you still have to love them and care for them and see them as people who are made in the image of God. Even when you're having like the worst possible day that you could imagine. It's hard, though. It's just part of, it's part of being human to struggle with that and to struggle to keep the, your birds off of your, your sacrifices that you have laid out on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> like, <sighs> yeah. And it's, it's interesting, Seth, that we haven't explicitly mentioned this, but it's been interesting how our conversations for our two Lent episodes so far have kind of led us into conversations about our brokenness and and I use that term carefully again don't use it to reflect that we are unworthy or not who we need to be but to reflect that we still have great capacity for great harm right alongside our capacity for great good mm-hmm. but it's so interesting to in this season kind of anchor ourselves in the parts of our experience, the parts of our identities that are hard. (laughs) And think about what grace means in the midst of a situation that feels like all hell is coming loose. Yeah, somehow when we when we can name our own brokenness in the ways that we can hurt others, I always think that also makes God's grace seem so much more fantastic. The more that we see our own failings, or at least the potential to hurt others, the way that we're tied up into systems that oppress others, the ways that we work with the powers, just like we were talking about last episode, the times when we inadvertently say yes, to things that are actually exclusive. I think that somehow it actually helps us to hear God's yes about us even more powerfully. That seems like the right note to end on, Seth. Well, then would you pray with me? I'd love that. God of the covenant, 
in the mystery of your beloved community. You bind all people together, despite our brokenness. Gather all people into your arms and shelter us with your mercy, that we may rejoice in the life we share in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Thanks everyone for joining us. We're so glad you're part of this conversation too. Next week, we're going to take a look at Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 9. But until then, I'll just say, thanks for walking us through that story, Seth. Thanks for helping me tell it. I also like the euphemism for Abram's semen. So, (laughs) (laughs) I'm probably going to cut this out, but... (laughs) No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. The CEB is your heir will definitely be your very own biological child. <laughs> oh my god. And issue issue is like in Hebrew is from the belly and the the Septuagint reads like out of you. <laughs> okay. That's actually not bad. I mean, that's like one way to think, like, think literally about that metaphor. The CEV will definitely be your biological child. I mean, that's like a fine translation, if a, if a little blunt, maybe. I'm looking up the message. Oh, that's the worst one yet. A son from your body. <laughs> oh, that's not. Boo. Good. Boo, that's not even fun. Say ejaculation.